News Hounds from Queen City Nerve is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. And we are back for episode three of Queen City Nerve's News Hounds podcast. Queen City Nerve is your bi-weekly alternative newspaper here in Charlotte at 500 different locations around the city. I am Ryan Pitkin, editor-in-chief of Queen City Nerve, and I'm here with my co-host, publisher Justin LaFrancois. What's up, Justin? Oh, not much. Just drinking some whiskey. Yeah, we're keeping it simple today. What'd you, what'd you mix up today? It's just a minor little mix. I just poured some High West Double Rye whiskey from Utah with some Amaro Montenegro and bitters because I don't feel like doing anything else. Well, that works. <laughs> we, we keep it classy here. Um, and then today's guest, we have Ray McKinnon here, pastor and a founder of New South Progressives. How are you doing today, Ray? Doing well. Co-founder. Co-founder of New South Progressives, and I just clarified that with you, and I, uh, I misstated it. We've also got Daryl Williams here, chair of the Partnership for a Better Mecklenburg. It's a committee campaigning in favor of our proposed sales tax that's going to serve as the foundation of today's conversation. We'll get deeper into that. How are you doing today, Daryl? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. A lot of, uh, a lot of conversation going on around this in town uh, these days. So I'm just going to jump right into it and sort of describe what it is we're talking about here. Uh, the proposed sales tax... Mecklenburg Board of County Commissioners voted in this summer to put it on the ballot for November 5th, and it would raise the sales tax in Mecklenburg County by a quarter cent from 7.25% to 7.50, and that will go towards a number of different things, but it's going to go heavily towards the arts, which is why you've heard it a lot often in media referred to as the arts tax. Um, 45% would go to... um, arts in Charlotte, which would then be governed by the Arts and Science Council, a restructured, reorganized Arts and Science Council. Uh, the rest would go to parks and rec, schools, education, and then uh, with a small amount going to different municipalities around Mecklenburg that are not Charlotte. And so a lot of people are talking about this. A lot of people have chosen sides. It's been a very interesting debate going on. Um, and the reason we brought you two in, Daryl Williams, obviously, as I just stated, you are the chair of the committee that is campaigning for to vote for this for this referendum and then we have Ray here who has been an outspoken opponent of it um, so let's just get into sort of we're going to start with you Daryl and just say you know this is obviously would be a big change in the way that Mecklenburg County approaches its arts in general uh, funds it obviously but obviously the funding is the biggest key as to how we get these programs and things off the ground so tell me a little bit about why why this approach and, and why now? Well, I think the approach um, regarding the governance structure that the county voted on was to make sure that uh, it's community supported, that it's basically controlled by the community. Uh, it'll be a broad-based group, including elected officials from city council, county commission, and representatives from the community and the towns. And I mean, that's done because, of course, past there have been some trust issues and they want to make sure that you know these funds are basically going to be how they're spent is going to be controlled by the community mm-hmm. and uh, so that's the reason why they put this new structure together right to make sure that uh, there's input throughout the process uh, they're going to document every dollar that's spent and and the impact that it has on the community at right. the end of each year and the vote came September 4th from the Board of County Commissioners that you're talking the vote that you're talking about 
that would approve that Arts and Science Council would restructure, reorganize, and become based completely on allocating these funds that come in from the, the tax, which is an estimated $50 million, 22.5 of which would go towards the arts, and that would be what mm -hmm. ASC is in charge of doling out, if you will, writing grants That's and, right. and That's right. putting it towards just, institutions. Just the arts? They, would, they, would Arts and Science Council just be controlling that 22.5? Yeah, or, just that bit, right? So they wouldn't have their hands in the rest and of it's it. Not, and it's not, you know, just to make sure it's clear, it's not the Arts and Science Council, it's the board, it's the governance structure, which right. includes others, including the <clears throat> Arts and Science Council. Right, and that would be a newly formed board, newly That's structured right. board that would include elected representatives. That's correct. But as Justin was speaking to, it's just... That new board would only be in charge of that 22.5, not that's, the parks and that's rec. Correct. And stuff, that's correct. That's right? correct. So as we mentioned, Ray, you've um, you've been an outspoken opponent of this. Uh, want people asking that people vote against it. Uh, you've run for county commissioner multiple times, and I know from, during those campaigns that you're a big advocate for arts, but not only arts, a lot for the parks. You've, you've spoken a lot about the parks and that importance, and that is the second. The thing that would be set, get the second most funding from this tax, but why is it that you have spoken so strongly against this tax? What are your big uh, re reservations here? Yeah, so for me, the the first thing is the process that got us here, right? Mm -hmm. um, the reason why I believe that arts are getting forty five to 45 percent of this is because this was something that the ASC brought, and then we added on those other two things in my other three things as an afterthought. If we were having a conversation with the allocations different, you wouldn't have me sitting at this table. Mm -hmm. If we were having a conversation uh, where the process that got us to this place where we've been talking about it was different, I likely wouldn't be in this place. But my big contention mm -hmm. on the process is you have the Arts and Science Council. By all the, it, it's going to be reconstructed but it will still be the Arts and Science Council. It will still be a private um, uh, nonprofit mm -hmm. that is going to be in charge of regulating public dollars. This private nonprofit that, as uh, commissioner, uh, the commissioner said before, uh, this private nonprofit uh, will not be subject to the same open meeting laws. Sure, there will be elected officials on the board, but what won't happen is like at the county commission meeting where if you as a, as a media representative uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request and you get the documents, that's not going to be the case because this is still going to be, although it's reconstituted, it's still going to be a private group. And from my perspective, I don't know what separates the Arts and Science Council and the incredible work that they do, but why do they have this level of outsized influence that they can get a tax levied on the citizens of Mecklenburg County. Why, what makes them any different than any other nonprofit that we have in this county? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I serve in Brook Hill, and the United Way has done incredible work. I mean, we've gotten tens of thousands of dollars of grants uh, mm -hmm. from the United Way. Their funding structure uh, has been similar to what the Arts and Science Council currently uses, where they are getting uh, donations from folks, and but they've had to restructure, and I'm mm -hmm. sure... There are other nonprofits that do incredible work, such as the Arts and Science Council, who would love to have the access uh, that the ASC has, and, and they don't, and, and they shouldn't, frankly. Right. We shouldn't set a, a precedent like this. Right, and what is it that, like, I, that's sort of what I meant earlier when I was saying this is sort of unprecedented in the way that things will be approached and, and 
not only in arts funding, but funding many things through a nonprofit or or any organization. So why is it that this was the approach that was taken well, from the, from the get-go? Let me say this. The, 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 I guess last year I was asked to, to work, be involved, co-chair a study group mm -hmm. to look at um, arts funding in this community and the challenges that the arts and culture community have been trying to come up with a way to develop, come up with a designated revenue stream for years. I mean, I, you know, it... It has uh, from, it has, the funds have decreased from these organizations, operating funds have decreased from $11.3 million to $5.7 million um, since the recession. And so to, it's to have to depend strictly on private dollars, there will, there will not be enough equity, I think. We want to make sure that the whole community benefit, you know, mm -hmm. from arts and culture in our community. And so the only way to do that is to make sure they have public funding. I mean, through this process, we studied uh, several other cities around the country that we compete with on a daily basis. I mean, mm -hmm. Detroit, Denver, El Paso, all these, all these cities have already looked at public funding because they feel like that is the only way you're going to get equity. Mm -hmm. if, if you depend on private funding to fund the arts, what you're going to have, they're going to be controlling where the dollars go. So the neighborhoods, for example, the program that the county and the uh, Arts and Science Council developed called Culture Blocks, that's disseminating throughout several neighborhoods right now. There's, there's only 10 locations, but the, the thought of being able to do that throughout, throughout Charlotte in every neighborhood where these needs are needed the most, uh, that's, that's what this is all about. I mean, it, otherwise I would not be involved. We want to make sure that kids in our neighborhoods and the community, the seniors, seniors, that they get to participate in arts and culture. I mean, arts really change lives. And uh, I would not be an architect today if it wasn't for art. Right. And so, I mean, it, it really influences kids and changes their lives. So I think if we depended on, if we continue on the track that we're going, we're going to lose a lot of jobs, a lot of businesses, small uh, individual artists, Small nonprofits in the art sector—they're going to be—they're going to be—they're going to fall by the wayside if, we, if there's not public support mm -hmm. to help support them and make sure that we continue to have a vibrant arts scene in our community. Right. And I want to clarify. I think you know when we've had this conversation, there's kind of been this: either you support this iteration of the arts tax to publicly fund the arts, or you're against publicly funding the arts. I, I'm on record as being in favor of publicly funding arts. And I think many other folks, certainly not all, but many other folks, especially folks like me who tend to be more progressive, who tend to be more democratic, mm -hmm. are in favor of that. Again, it comes down to the process where we've come. And so what we have is an organization that um, has trust issues, and that's something that they need to reckon with. with. And what we are asking folks to do, essentially, we say we're going to reconstitute the Arts and Science Council. We're asking people, essentially, to be venture capitalists for this new group that we haven't seen the whole process for. We don't know uh, all of the details. We, we've gotten some, thankfully, um, but we don't know all of these things. We don't know. I, I've spoken to many local, especially black artists, since this has started. I spoke to one today. And one of the things uh, this person says, she just asked the question, how are we going to ensure, what are the process right now in black and white to ensure funding to 
artists who are black and or other um, non-white artists? How are we going to ensure that we're not giving the lion's share of the money to uh, white organizations, frankly, right. that are already benefiting from these? The lion's share of the money that the Art and Science Council, uh, Arts and Science Council give are to organizations that predominantly, obviously you have exceptions, but predominantly are to organizations that are white-owned, white-controlled. And there is, I've not seen the mechanism. I mean, I trust people, most of our elected officials who will be appointed, but we don't, everybody else doesn't know these folks, right? And we don't know the black and white, what's going to come. And so it's trust us, but the group that is essentially still going to be, the ASA, is still going to be the group that doles these things out. And I'm, I'm heartened to hear that they're changing to a more equity-focused model, but what we have to go on is what they did before they came to the public asking for money. Right. And I had a conversation this morning with County Commissioner Susan Harden, who's a uh, steadfast supporter, and she was telling me sort of about, I had just written an editor's note in, in our last in a paper that came out this week about some of my holdups and reservations and not necessarily saying yes or no, but why I, what I've seen in the presentation and stuff. And my big question was, what are we doing other than taking someone's word for the fact that we are now going to be much more equity driven and, and focus well, on independence yeah, yeah. as opposed to institutions? Well, and let me like say that. this, you know, during the study group, there was not one meeting where everyone around the table was concerned about equity. Mm-hmm. And then when we did take it to the county commission, they also spoke about equity, you know? And, and so, you know, I think this is not really about the Arts and Science Council. I think the Arts and Science Council has done an outstanding job. I mean, there are issues like there are with any organization, but they've done a great job. I mean, at one time that when I was on the county commission that the elected officials tried to decide who gets art was a major disaster. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing we want is to have open meetings and have elected officials sitting around deciding who, who gets certain funds for art. Yeah, I agree. That would be a disaster. I don't you know, so, trust our and so the you know the the idea the Arts and Science Council in this new the way they're gonna restructure is that they won't be actually competing, you know, with pro doing programming. Mm-hmm. They're strictly gonna help dish out the funds. Right. And the, it, this is all about accountability. That's mm-hmm. why this new structure was put in place. It's, 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 but, it's for accountability and to make sure that the community is involved in that process. The reason why there are not a lot of details is because the county want the community input mm-hmm. before all the details are laid out. That's the last thing we want is to have this rushed and all the details flushed out without the community involved. I but do I want think, to talk more about that, but Ray, sounds I mean, like you I, I think with all due respect, this whole process has been rushed. I mean, we've, we, you know, this summer this came brought to us. And we are like, we've got to get this on because we've got to get it on in November uh, in a, an election right now where we learned this week that we're at 43% of the folks who have voted that voted in 2017. Uh, even with the funding, even if we're not the folks who are governing it, the money is coming from the county. So if folks, if you have a repeat of, of what, what you were referring to, these same people can say, we're, we're, we don't need to give them any money anymore. I mean, this... This idea that just because the public isn't governing it as a as a public institution or as a public committee, somehow the influence of those sorts of people is I, I don't think that's that's intellectually honest because the money I mean the, the person who 
who uh, pays the piper chooses the tune. And if if the public is paying the money to the Arts and Science Council, because we, we learned that they're going to they're gonna cease their programming, they're going to cease their fundraising. So all of their money is coming from the public. So if the public has a problem with something, they're going to still have the ability to go and say to the ASC or whomever, like, you don't do this, right? Well, you like know, in the past, they've had probably one kind of commissioner sitting on the, on the committee. You know, they're going to have up to four, right. you know, and the same thing with city council. And then each one of them will get to appoint representatives from the community. That's why, never been done before. No, right? I, why can't we lay that out at least? So obviously you guys want to do a lot of community input in the first after if it were to pass and to get the actual line items. This is where the money's going. This is what we want. But why can't we see at least what the board will look like as far as this many city council, this many? Well, you know, it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, to get it right so everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that kind of time. As I said, the, the funding has decreased, you know, from... 13, 11.3 uh, million to 5.7, and it's continuing to go down. And if we don't figure out a way to make sure that there's public funding for arts and culture, I mean, even parks. Parks mm -hmm. right now, we're 96 out of 100 right. in the, regarding the condition of our parks and how much we put into parks. We can't, we can't sit and just let that continue to exist. Well, let's I mean, you're talking about communities like Durham, Greensboro, Raleigh, they spend more money per resident on their parks than we do. Right. And so if we sit here and try to figure out all the details, it'll never get done. But I think well, that's an argument to have, to, to, to go back to the whole conversation about the allocations. So I completely agree with you on the arts, uh, on the parks. Uh, the reality is our parks are abysmal uh, and we don't spend enough. So that's an argument for going back and saying, no, we're going to open up this conversation. If we're, gonna, if we're intent on having... To, in, on using our last quarter cent sales tax, because what we didn't talk about, I know everybody keeps saying it's a Republican talking point, but it's the reality, is that we this is our last uh, quarter cent that we can put on the ballot as it stands now. I know there's a, well, a that's what I want to talk about going, next because I think this is an important part that I think some people might be listening and just screaming at the speakers saying, "Well, this is what you should have started with," because it is a, it is reaching the cap of a sales tax in a city where there are, I think, inarguably crises that are. Bigger than this, as far as affordable, as far as inequity as a yeah, whole, yeah, and, yeah. and affordable housing and mass transit being two mm -hmm, big examples mm -hmm, of that. Mm -hmm. um, so, how do you justify using that last, reaching that cap, to do th two things that I think everyone in this room is supportive of, as far as arts and parks mm -hmm, as well, mm -hmm. but to use that, use that action to do to confront that issue well, specifically. We have raised two hundred and seventy million dollars for affordable housing, mm -hmm. and as an architect, I know that there's a process. You can't build with so many affordable housing units at one time. And so what do we do? Not do anything until all the affordable housing is built? That's a problem. That would be a problem. So, you know, we can't just, just wait. I think we have a lot of challenges in our community, mm -hmm. and they have to be dealt with comprehensively, you know, and our children is the number one. You know, so you're talking about children in neighborhoods that don't have adequate park facilities. They don't have after-school programs. They cut out field trips several years ago. They can't go understand history and science. So I think the idea of, in the county, parks already get about $40, $50 million a year in the county budget. You know, so schools get $500-some million. So when you look at the allocation, that's why it's allocated the way it is. You know, uh, arts hardly got anything. You know, mm -hmm. so the county budget already includes a large amount of money for parks, 
and uh, schools. And so there's hardly anything for arts. So, you know, you got to take that into consideration when you look at the way the money was divided up. Uh, you know, it was done because the county understand the shortfall. The county commission understand where the shortfall is within their budget and what other critical needs we have in our community. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why it's divided up the way it is. Mm -hmm. There's already a large, you know, we're, we're Mecklenburg County is getting up to 60 additional people every day in this community. And our infrastructure needs can't keep up with it right. without additional funding. Well, I mean, I think with, with all due respect, you know, I'm, I'm a housing commissioner. Affordable housing is one of my passions. Um, and the notion that, uh, you're right, we've raised an incredible amount of money for affordable housing, but we know that we have a 15,000-unit deficit, and the, the amount of money we've raised is incredible. It's, it was a great feat. As a member of Leading Opportunity Council, I was happy to, to, do, to, to do anything I could, but the fact that we have that big of a deficit, the amount that we've raised isn't enough. Uh, you know, we have actually about 100 people moving into the region every day. Uh, and that's, we, our infrastructure is already um, to the point where it is untenable. Um, the fact that, you know, we said earlier that our parks aren't funded adequately a as it is in other cities. So that tells us even if we have that amount in our budget for the county, obviously our parks can use more money. And for me... But that's th with property taxes. You see, that's the challenge. I mean, you, I, I, you, 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 so you're saying you want to increase property taxes to take no, care of more parks? No, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that. But <laughs> if we can increase uh, sales taxes uh, to, for arts, parks, and schools, we can allocate a greater amount to parks. Um, but also, you know, we didn't answer the question about why we should use this last quarter cents on, again, a, a, a group that does incredible work but we're giving millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to, when you boil it all down, it's still a nonprofit. Uh, and we have all of these things on the record. We know that back in 2007, the General Assembly capped spending, the total spending uh, on um, for our sales tax at 7.5%. We're currently at 7.25%. This is, unless something changes, uh, this is our last bite at the apple. What I'm <laughs> suggesting is these are all incredible things, but what happens when we have to use money for something if affordable housing or mass transit. Like, what are we going to do? Well, uh, we're going to be left with, we're going to be left with the other regressive tax of property tax. Uh, that, and we know even if, you know, uh, the most vulnerable folks among us aren't necessarily homeowners, they are renters, and the, the, the homeowners will pass those costs along. And so for me, this, this all comes down to our priorities. Uh, the, and what are we saying? On top of the property rate increase, on top of the service fees, the county increase at, at pools, at the health department, all these other places. We're doing this on top of, on top of, on top of, and there comes a breaking point for people. That's, that's my thing, right? Like it's right now, the fact that we're doing this right now, right after we uh, have seen people's property rates go up, not just because of the, you know, the two cents increase, but also because of the, the revaluation. But we're doing it to make sure that children have, have uh, additional resources in the classrooms for teachers and, and, and kids. We're doing it to make sure kids have adequate facilities, park facilities close to their home where they live. We're doing it so that kids could have access to arts and culture and more than just sports. That's why we're doing it, because kids continue to fall by the wayside, not being active enough, getting involved in, in other things, 
and uh, stand out of trouble. So that's why it's important. That's why we're doing it because you can see every day somebody gets shot. You know, and if we don't if we don't create other opportunities for these kids, and even our seniors be able to get them out of the homes, engage with the neighbors. I mean, when do you do it? I mean, I think the idea of the uh, using the seven the the quarter of a cent that's left. I mean, these are critical issues. So I don't know why you think they're not critical. I'm I mean, not saying they're, they're critical. not critical. They're, 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 you know, I, I would agree. Housing is a very critical issue. And it's being, it being, it's being taken care of. It's just going to take more time to build all the units that we need. So we shouldn't just negate all the other challenges we have in our community because of one or two challenges that might be more critical. We shouldn't just sit back and, and, and let these other issues, you know, go by the wayside. I, and I, I don't disagree, uh, Commissioner. I think the, for me, when we are... When we have our last tool, you got your last bite that's of the not, apple. That, that's that's it, the last right now. Exactly. But so, I, I can tell you right now that that's that fifty million is a drop in the bucket for the for the challenges we have for transit. This new transit line is probably going to take it's probably going to take fifteen to twenty five years to build out our transit system, and it's going to cost billions of dollars. So we're, 50 million is not going to do hardly anything we're gonna to get deal to the, with transit. We're going to get to the transit thing on the other side of the break, too, so we can talk about that. But you're right in the sense that it's $50 million for a study of that silver line, which is what this tax will raise in a full year. Um, but I did want to go back to what you said about the, the children um, and, and the importance of programming in their lives. I, I wrote in my editor's note about I mentor uh, a child here in Charlotte who we take advantage of everything we can as far as arts programming, and it's it's key to me as far as watching him come up and stay out of trouble is to just keep him involved in stuff. And we've used the Gantt Center as workshops. We've done culture blocks a couple times. Um, but what can, let's say this was passed, and obviously we go through a community input process. What can, what does the county and ASC, if it were passed, have the power to do to make this accessible to children specifically? What power do they have in the schools? Because as Justin and I were dis have been discussing in the office this week, yeah, that's... don't take don't take my talking point. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> hey, I had to get it before we go over, but uh, just to s in general, schools are obviously the most accessible because that's where kids are, are going to be able to get there. there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Justin brought up that not everyone can go to the Gantt Center workshops or make it to the Gantt Center workshops where I bring my mentee. But what is it that you? What power would you have to? Increase accessibility to these and to children well, specifically. Number one, you you have representatives sitting on this governance board, right, from the community. Number one, then you have elected officials from the city, county, and the towns, and so that's that's accountability. And then, in addition to that, there's going to be a contract between ASC and the county, and they're going to look at that contract every year to make sure that what's what's being done is what the community want. Otherwise, they'll change it, and so. I think even the, the $17 million for parks, that's going to be a separate accounting for that from the county normal budget. Mm -hmm. So every year, you know, the, the community will, it'll be transparency where they can see exactly how those dollars are being spent. Same thing with the $8 million for the schools. They'll be able to see how those dollars are being spent and, and to see what impact they're having on our community. And so I think, you know, that's why this structure has been put together that's never been done before to make sure that you got citizen input throughout the entire process. 
and all the decisions that are made about which art, arts organizations get funded is going to be based on uh, coming from this group that's that's citizen led. Right. And so you know if it it, it it should come you know making sure that kids are taken care of will come from the community. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone cares about that. But, yeah, I, I feel like I mean again as a as a as a dad um, to um, four boys, four black boys, uh, three of whom are still living at home, uh, who lives uh, off of Sunset Road. Um, North I, Charlotte, I, shout out. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, is, it is important for us to have our kids involved. But one thing I always go back to, when I was in, in, in college, I took a, a freshman psychology class, and uh, we all learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, and you know what the base of that is, is are the fundamental needs, are your basic needs, food, shelter, these sorts of things. And, and so for me, when I talk about the top priority of that last quarter cent, it's uh, making sure that we can meet those priorities. And certainly arts and, and culture are incredibly important. And as I've said before, they have been vital in the life of my kids. All of my kids were adopted from foster care. And they ha- they've gone through so much trauma and arts, uh, from, from graphic arts, writing, uh, uh, music, has been incredible um, uh, to them. But, you know, at the end of the day, we can't, we don't have any assurances. Um, we don't, other than trusting the folks who will be on that. We don't, uh, Mr. Mr. Commissioner. We don't. Like, there, I, I would. Lo- I mean, if we could have stuff in right, but you, we know, could, but you, you can actually get on the board and influence those assurances. You see what I'm well, saying? I'm sure if so it you, so, will so, be so, so you know, you <laughs> can, you can be there. You can be sitting at the table helping to make those decisions. That's what I tell people. So you, know, you don't, you don't vote on this and then sit on the sidelines. And assume it's going to work out the way sure. you want I mean, it to work out. And, and, you got to continue to advocate. And on the other side, if if and you know if this doesn't pass, I'll feel even more of an obligation to ensure that, especially uh, black and non-white artists, are uh, are centered when we because you know, folks. I mean, the county does give already, does have in their line of uh, money for the ASC. What does it look like to increase? I mean, I at, when this conversation first started, oh, pro- we property learned, taxes, right? It doesn't matter. It's in there, right? Like it's so. Well, I mean, it's you in increase there. It, you increase the property. No, taxes. no, not necessarily. I'm. You it, take it's something re- else out. No, it's reallocating things, right? Those are. It's all about priorities. Yeah. It's all. Yeah. You know this, Mr. Commissioner. Uh, you know this better than any of us at this table because you've done it, right? Uh, it's it's asking ourselves since we've seen that this this is a top priority in our community. How do we ensure it's funded? And how do we ensure that the people who aren't already getting the lion's share of the money from the ASC? How do we ensure that they're center and 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 that's a big thing for me. I don't feel like, and I feel like those questions are somehow uh, been just acting. It's like it's a, a, a crazy thing to ask. And I'm, you know, it's like those of us who are asking those questions are somehow just being, you know, obstinate and not wanting, just are against the arts. It's, it's for me, it really is all about that. I'm not some anti-tax person. It's just not who I am. And, and anybody who knows me knows that. But it's, I am a person who really does believe in equity, who really does believe the process should be open and apparent for everyone. And, you know, you can't, we can't just say, trust us. It's like, you got to earn that That's trust. why we're not saying trust us. That's why we're setting up this committee, this, this governance group, the way we are. You know, but, you're, talking about a, 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 you're talking about a quarter, uh, a quarter for $100, uh, five cents on $20. That's what you're talking about. And that's a small price to pay for the impact that I know this could make. I mean, even just, if you just looked at culture blocks, 
you know, the 10 organizations, 10 locations right now and the impact that it's making on our community. If you looked at that, right, I mean, I saw a video, and I worked on a study group. I saw a video. It blew me away. I didn't even know it was taking place. We've got to do this quickly. We're, we're yeah. coming up on 30 minutes, but I, I yeah. don't want to interrupt you, but go ahead and yeah. just so wrap I, this I up. didn't know it was taking place, but to have public funding to go into neighborhoods, bring adults and seniors out of their home, engaging with the neighbors in our facilities that, facilities that we, we, we've spent millions of dollars on that are being underutilized, you know, you know, getting them involved and, and talking with the neighbors. What happens when that happens, they get involved in their community. They start discussing things, and they, they get involved instead of being in their homes. And so I think the impact of this, this 20, 20 cents, you know, uh, $0.25 cents on $100, I think is major. It's going to be a major impact to help transform our entire community and make sure that's equity in every neighborhood, not just in our center city. I just want to clarify. clarify. Um, the, the tax will, this additional tax, again, it's on top of the property rate increase, which will impact people who are renters, even if you're not a home, homeowner, it will impact uh, this. This will impact people like who my church serve every every week, almost on a weekly or monthly basis. We're having to pay for people to stay at the hotel. This this tax will impact them. This tax will impact people who who like uh, we know the majority of folks who are poor uh, 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 are the ones who consume on a on a outsized basis prepared food. This will impact people who are buying over the counter medicine. It will impact. Uh, folks who are buying diapers, and and so it's like all this, and all of this stuff is on top of all of the other stuff. And again, it's all about the process. I mean, we doing it. This is all about the process and and the perception yeah. of what we're saying to the most vulnerable. That's it's all. not included gas. It's right. not include. It's not include grocery, and it doesn't include prescription medicine. So, you know, and I think the idea is that yeah, it's, it's you know it's going to impact them, but it's going to impact them positively in a in a bigger way than than the, than the five cents on $20. I mean, you know, I I think the way that, I mean, it can really change our community in a big way. That is the debate. Um, That is the something for the voters to decide, and that's going to come election day, November 5th. Early voting is already open, so find your uh, local polling place. And we're going to take a break just to get some quick words in from Queen City Podcast Network, and then we'll be back to talk about some other local news uh, that is just as important. And maybe we might, we'll agree on some stuff. That's right. All right. How long do runners need to stretch before hitting the road? This is a 60-second training tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Stretching muscles while the body is at rest can lengthen muscles and help runners improve performance, reduce injuries, and recover from a tough run faster. But how long should a good stretch last? The simple answer is 30 seconds. This allows your cold muscles to relax and be ready for work. Taking the time to stretch properly is critical, especially if you're coming back from an injury. Something to note though, stretching a muscle group for longer than 30 seconds can actually decrease your speed and hurt your performance. In addition to a good pre-run stretch, spend some time after your run and stretch the same muscle groups for 30 seconds as well. This has been your 60-second training tip powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more training tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com.
we are back with episode three of Queen City Nerves News Hound Podcast. I am right here with my co-host Justin LaFrancois. We have our guests here today, Ray McKinnon with New South Progressives, and we have Daryl Williams with Partnership for a Better Mecklenburg. Uh, we had a great, great first half of the podcast, great discussion, and we're going to move on to some more uh, different topics. Can I clarify? I am not speaking on behalf of New South Progressives. No, but I am the founder. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> um, but there was no vote on, on this. This is an step. opinion piece. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, so the first one we're going to hop into is from a city council meeting, not this past week, but the week before. It happened right after our last podcast, in which actually a lot of stuff happened in that city council meeting. Yes. One thing we're going to touch on real quick is, uh, for the first time in about a decade, the city council made changes to the housing uh, ordinances here in Charlotte, and they did it in response to the Lake Arbor uh, mass mess. eviction. <laughs> yes, the mass eviction at Lake Arbor. Basically, you can go back and listen to our episode one when we had April Lewis and Robert Dawkins on to talk all about the Lake Arbor mess, but that um, was an entire apartment complex full of uh, people living in affordable, low-income apartments, and the landlords there were basically slumlords, and they were letting everything in coding enforcement just sort of lapse, and the living uh, situation there got really bad and to the point where the city went into investigate every unit, found housing ordinance violations in every single unit, and at the point where they pressured them to fix it, the owners simply said, we're going to kick everybody out, renovate it, rebuild it, and probably charge somewhere ridiculous amount of rent later on in a couple of years, uh, whether they sell it or, or do it themselves. So basically, the new ordinance changes state that they will keep for violators of this housing ordinance, they will keep the old $100 fine when they're found per unit. But what changed is that an increase of $10 for every day that they stay in violation will now change to $100 per day. Per they, unit. Per unit. And that's going to be including more strength in, uh, more strength in ordinances regarding light, ventilation, maintenance, plumbing requirements, things like that. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up for discussion here that I've been thinking a lot about uh, especially after today, and I'll explain why. Councilmember Ed Driggs at that meeting discussed the danger in upping these upping these uh, financial fines because of the fact that it might just make it easier for an owner to say, well, rather than pay this while I fix it, let's just kick these people to the curb and see what I can do with the land or the property or whatever. Um, and I actually, that is did play a role in, I'm sure, why Robert Wolf and the owners of Lake Arbor kicked everybody out of that apartment complex without even the newer, stricter ordinances. But it's also an excuse being used by a developer of a uh, 74-year-old woman in Belmont neighborhood that I spoke with this morning who has nine days to get out of her house before November 1st because her landlord told her that developers... Well, developers want it, but her landlord told her it's, she only is, wants to give it to developers because of all the fines that she's facing, which... I think she's sort of full of shit, to be honest, because these ordinances haven't even taken effect yet. Are you going to write the story or tell it now? I'm, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Look for this um, today. Later. Yes. But um, so I just sort of wanted to get people's thoughts as to the big question revolving around this in my mind is, can these increased fines hurt the case for low-income renters who do not own their property as opposed to put more pressure on people to get their living conditions up. And you're on the Housing Commission. Daryl, you are the owner of um, Neighboring Concepts who works around housing issues in Charlotte. Um, so whoever wants to pick it up and, and just your thoughts on this as 
bigger experts than I am in the area. I think it's uh, I think it's um, it's a mixed bag, right? Like it's um, could it? Yeah, I mean, anything could happen. Uh, but should they have enacted the the new regulations? Yes, they should have because, well, folks should there should be a consequence for allowing folks to uh, live in substandard housing. Right. Um, I do believe that it is important to to think about the ramifications of of, of things, but th- there comes a point where you can't just allow folks to get away with exploiting uh, the most vulnerable among us. It is on uh, elected officials, I think, uh, to always have at top of mind the how how any um, regulation is going to impact the most vulnerable. Um, and you know, with all due respect to Councilman Griggs, um, no matter what small increment happen, he's going to use that argument because that's what, right. that's their, that's, that's the way the they do. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> their talking point. Regulation's bad. Uh, free market. Nobody well, in his know. district is concerned with this. Put right. it that way. <laughs> right, exactly. So no, I mean, I think, I mean, it does make me think about, uh, you know, sometimes what happens if you have, um, you know, you remember like when there, there was this hotel that was, uh, it was gross and people were sleeping in there and it was just nasty conditions. It got shut down. And then folks were Almost. forced out, and then mm-hmm. so it, it it it's a balance, man. Like it's a balance act because if you don't ha- if we don't have um, a contingency plan, like we didn't have for Lake Arbor, mm-hmm. we you know we have to ask ourselves: Are we leaving people better um, or not? So it's it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy answer. I will defer to uh, the much wiser commissioner. <laughs> well, I tell you. Uh, what what happened in Lake Arbor should never be allowed to happen again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think, and whatever, I, I'm not familiar with the new changes that the city council voted on, but I will tell you uh, that whatever decisions you make, there are pros and cons. Right. And I think that's what elected officials have to weigh, the pros and cons, every time something is voted on. You know, whether it's going to make it worse or make it better. And I respect that the city council members thought this through, uh, along with the city staff, to to really feel like this is in the best interest of the most vulnerable vulnerable people in our community. And so, I mean, I, I respect that that's probably the right thing to do. I mean, we have to do something. We can't sit back and let what happened happen again. Well, it's still going to be <clears throat> a case-by-case basis, just like right. anything, like raising the, the sales tax or, uh, you know, Anything like that, because it's all financial risk management. If a property management company looks at uh, not wanting to pay the fines and instead kicking everybody out so they can redevelop, it's just like, is it cheaper to pay $100 a day per unit uh, while getting the maintenance up? Or is it better to shut the place down with no income from that property for X amount of months while they renovate to then get the occupancy rating back up to profitability. And it's just, it's financial risk management. I wonder if there's some proactive way to do this to where you give people incentive or reason not to get to that point where it's already there. Like Free box of candy. Right. You get, I don't know. uh, I just said it, free box of candy. Yeah, free box of candy. (laughs) But just in general, keep it, Upkeep is important to the point where you don't get to the point where now you violated and now it's to the point where it's going to be so expensive to fix that you'd rather kick everybody out. And obviously I was thinking earlier, I'm just thinking out loud on the podcast at this point, but like 
you can't um, make them secure housing for folks that they kick out because they want to renovate because the lease already says that. So if someone's living on a month-to-month lease, then they have the right to, to well, tell them they so have to leave. Well, it's, so it's basically it's a preemptive ordinance that they passed then. So we have new developers coming to the city all the time, buying out old properties, uh, possibly with the intention to leave them the way they are and make their profit off of the people that live there already. But now they'll know coming into the picture, if you don't maintain the property, this will be the fine. Therefore, right. we maintain the property before we get to the fine. We don't kick everybody out. Right. We don't repurpose it. That would be the ideal situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing uh, from there, a uh, quote from the weekly news roundup that we put out every Saturday about council making the change to the housing ordinance says, last month, the judge granted tenants an additional two weeks to vacate the property. Some were back in court that Tuesday in order to prevent the eviction from showing up in their public records. And right. I think that's wrong. That's awful. It should not be called an eviction when a property manager makes the decision to shut down the living circumstance of a property right yeah it should be called something completely different because mm -hmm. that shouldn't negatively affect your public standing the to any creditor yeah the woman in belmont uh that i went and saw today she was in court on tuesday for that same reason and the judge actually told her first off it's heartbreaking that the judge said i i agree with everything you're saying about you have no money you you don't know where you're going to go on november 1st but there's nothing i can do to help you and then he told her be sure that you tell any person that you go and try to rent from from here on out that that eviction was on no fault of your own. Well, there just because there's no word for it. Yeah, there should be a word for it. You call it uh, gentrified. Gentrified. I've I was been gentrified out of I've my apartment. I've been gentrified, and that's an official term. Well, I mean, yeah. that's, it, it brings to mind uh, that it's expensive being poor. Um, mm -hmm. it, and Absolutely. This is, this is just another example, right? Like it, it's this is what I'm not this is what happens in a capitalistic society where the market drives everything because at the end of the day it's all about the dollar right. and this is what happens when you when the local governments don't have the uh, authority that they probably should have because you know we're living in a Dillon rule state and right. uh, there's there's very little uh, that uh, local governments can do that the state doesn't allow them to do right. so it's it's th th we're at a place where if we don't do something drastically different, we're going to we're gonna we're gonna lose folks, and folks are gonna Absolutely. continue to get poor and poor. Displacement uh, happening everywhere. So moving on then to another um, topic that was discussed at City Council, not voted on for another well, might be just about a week now, um, was the proposal for the new light rail extension, which will be called the Silver Line and go east to west from. Or west to east, however you want to look at it. No, no. <laughs> it's yeah, alphabetically. Okay, then east to west. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Unless you want to say from Matthews to Belmont, then it's Belmont to Matthews. <laughs> but it's going to go east to west. Um, and from Matthews and then end at the Gaston County, or at the Gaston, uh, ugh, River. River. I was going to call it the Gaston River. Uh, that's what happens here on Newshounds when the whiskey starts to hit. The Catawba River, as far as Mecklenburg goes, and it might stretch into Belmont, depending on their government. It says, uh, Charlotte Area Transit System officials presented plans for the 26-mile extension, which would extend from Matthews in the southeastern Mecklenburg County to Belmont, right. which is west of Charlotte. Belmont would be in charge of their own funding, though. And across the Catawba River. It would not end at. 
Well, I mean, for what Mecklenburg is funding. I already forgot what you were saying. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, this is going to, I think the big discussion here, as we mentioned earlier in uh, the first half, was that just to study, there, nobody's really sure of the cost here. People have been throwing numbers in the billions or at a, around a billion to make this happen because it would be a, a, a track that's three times longer than the one, the, the blue line that currently runs from north to south. And it would be $50 million right now just to fund a study that will get contractors on board or, or start to show what this thing will cost. But at the same time, I mean, that seems like a lot just to get a study. I know people are scoffing at, will scoff at that number, but I'm very much in support of this, of this silver line. Same. I think, I think um, mass transit and getting people to, especially going through West Charlotte, getting to the airport, not to mention yeah. the fact of having one an airport stop is huge. Um, so I just want to sort of get some people's thoughts on what this what this new silver line could mean. Let me share something, uh, and y'all want to kick me off this podcast? That's okay. Absolutely not, but, man. Uh, we're here for discussion. But I'm yeah, I'm I'm one, of, I'm one of the consultants that's involved. Oh. Make sure I'm transparent, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we were one of the companies that was selected to mm-hmm. uh, be involved in the silver line. Uh, we've been involved in light rail ever since the first light rail line was done mm-hmm. on south down south boulevard and is the name uh, of your firm yeah neighboring concepts oh okay yeah okay yeah. and we did the, the we were involved in the, the the line that went to the university as well mm-hmm. the three parking decks with the bridges going across mm-hmm. my firm designed those awesome. so so yeah, we. Uh, so I, I know probably more about this than I need to. Hey, let's <laughs> go for expertise. it. Yeah, <laughs> but I just wanted I think to share. We're that. we're, we're in support that. of it, so we're not yeah, going to be right. mad. At it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I. You know. So what did I get wrong there? Anything? I mean, what what are we what no, are we looking at? Well, here? you know, I, I think that uh, when you look at, we can't continue to uh, build outside, build roads to solve our transportation problems. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I, I it think causes congestion. You know, we just finished talking about affordable housing, and my my hope is that we get it right this time. I think we missed an opportunity mm-hmm. on the first and second line to ensure that we had enough property to uh, influence the building of affordable housing on transit lines. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that's going to, you know, people who... That just drew applause from Ray. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Silent library applause, but applause nonetheless. Yeah, people who don't have, uh, you know, good transportation and they, they need to be able to get to and from their jobs. I mean, being able to get on the light rail line and get there, I mean, that's, that's the best way to be able to take advantage of, of, of transit. Mm-hmm is to make sure that it, it impacts and helps the most vulnerable people in our community. Right. Yeah, because so, usually their issue yeah. is getting around from place to yeah, place, and then absolutely. when we put that in their community, then that's they right. are priced out right. and put in now, that same situation somewhere happened. else. That's what happened on the other lines. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of the Leading Opportunity Council, and mm-hmm. we put out the report uh, on, um, you know, indicators of upward mobility, and transportation is one of the top. I mean, you cannot, it, you can't have the conversation about upward mobility and not have the conversation about mass transit. You can't do it. Um, you know, $50 million sounds like a lot of money, but it's it's money that will be well spent. The, 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 and I mean, I'm telling you, the commissioner just made my day. This idea that and you he, can't he have... And he says, Commissioner, I, I failed to mention at the beginning of the podcast, is that Daryl was a four-term Mecklenburg County Commission. Oh, sorry. Yeah, my bad. No, uh, that's my bad. I should yeah. I should have said that from the get-go. Because, Both suck. Because when we are having <laughs> when we have the conversation about affordable housing in this stuff, you don't have it about uh, if you, if we're talking about transportation, you're not talking about affordable housing. You're not talking about preemptively 
securing enough land or enough property to ensure that folks are on that line, gentrification will happen. So you've got to preemptively make sure it doesn't. Right. Uh, so it's I love the idea, incredible. especially with it's it cutting, cutting right through West Charlotte. I mean, yeah, that's where accessibility is needed. Uh, it's good to know on. Ray and I agree on something. I know. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we agree on more than we disagree probably, on. Probably. I bet. I bet. Um, so now moving into a third story that everybody in Charlotte is uh, excited about, uh, or at least some of the more if basic. You're white everybody? Yeah, yeah, every white dude in South. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's be so this is going to be a new development called the Charlotte Beer Garden, a new, well. It's a sister I, concept of the Raleigh Beer Garden in Raleigh, a three-story right. Uh, mass tap Guinness bro- Guinness Book of World Record holding. It's on the light uh, rail line. Draft tap room essentially. Um, light rail trail, as they call it, and it's uh, aiming for 369 varieties of beer on draft tap. Is it in Loso? It is. It well, is. Well, somewhere. no, I think it's in regular. So 1300 South Tryon. <laughs> I think That's it's in Riso. That was shade. But yeah, 150 drafts on the first floor dedicated to North Carolina beer only because who cares? Right. So, uh, well, and we're, cocktails and food. Right. So we, J- Justin is a before he came into the publication industry, he was Been running in the restaurants, restaurant industry for he is over the expert a decade. Here. He brought up a good point that no one is touching on in the media about this place and why it's sort of disgusting. So, if you're thinking of 300 drafts together. Your, your average, your half barrel is one thousand nine hundred and eighty-four ounces. Holds two hundred and forty-four pints of beer. Uh, six six barrel, the next most popular size, which I assume that they'll buy the most of, is nine hundred ninety-eight ounces and holds forty-four pints of beer. Are you with us? So now <laughs> they're gonna <clears throat> with three hundred drafts. The I mean, it's basically if you want to talk about price or cleanliness, because keeping those lines clean for the the duration that that beer will be on, <laughs> Ray is already it's, taking it's difficult. So yeah. each, most local breweries self-distribute, and self-distributing breweries don't always have dedicated draft cleaners. So they outsource to crafty beer guys or some other uh, institution like that that goes out and cleans draft lines at bars and restaurants. Some of them can't afford it, so they don't do it at all, meaning that those draft lines don't get clean. So if you go to a bar that heavily carries... Uh, draft beer from a self-distributing brewery that doesn't get their lines clean, then there's a good chance that line hasn't been clean since that restaurant's been open if they keep that one beer on that one line. <laughs> Ray is just squirming <laughs> over here. Now, if you purchase from like Adams or Carolina Premium or Mutual, which is now Johnson Brothers or Artisan Beverages or things like that, then they have in-house draft line cleaners that go in once every two days. Every, every draft beer cooler in a restaurant will have a, a line cleaning schedule on it for the health department. Um, and uh, they do their best to keep up with it completely. But those lines never really get clean until you're behind the scenes and you see some of the shit that comes out of those lines. Right. Uh, if you don't have a, a faucet brush and you're in there cleaning it all the time, like you pull some nasty fucking bacteria out of there that guarantees ends up in your beer. So then to have that many beers on draft and hoping to sell through the keg, because one thing you do is you don't disconnect a keg until it's gone. Often, yeah, mm-hmm. because you lose CO2 in the keg that keeps the beer carbonated to the way that the brewer intended it to be. So unless they're getting like 1,500 people in there daily to pull through that beer and make those draft lines empty often, uh, let alone how much it's going to cost them each week to buy beer, uh, it's fucking disgusting. 
Uh, it doesn't seem cost feasible, and I think they're taking a big jump in a small market that's not ready for that scale. Absolutely. It'll be cool. It'll be three stories. The <laughs> owner of the concept uh, is a horticulture major, and there's going to be a tree growing in the middle of it, and they might have axe throwing <laughs> on the roof, and it's going to be very south endy. That's the most south Axe throwing at a bit. That sounds, that sounds No, on the third floor. On the third floor, on the roof. On the roof. But hey, I love getting drunk and throwing stuff at things, so I totally get it. But <laughs> I do not get it. <laughs> they are going to have a full cocktail bar. I recommend that be where you drink if you go there, because sure, for the first for the first six months to a year, that beer will stay clean. After that, I just it doesn't seem feasible to me. I've been to the Raleigh Beer Garden a few times. I've talked to the manager about it. I've gotten the scoffs, the eye rolls, the exhausted no. size. It's it's. Bullshit. Right, so first six months, guys, we're yeah, all gonna go. I'm telling you, right now. I'm never ordering it. another beer on draft. <laughs> I promise you, they're dirty. Yeah. And you may hey. have a good point earlier, and I, you kind of just said this, but just to clarify, that Did I like, forget to say it. No, no, you said it, but I think you were going so far down the rabbit hole. I want to make it like too long. Didn't read <laughs> that. Basically, if you have all these people or all these options, then some of the beers that aren't getting ordered all the time are just going to be sitting in that keg for so long that yes. they're going to skunk. Yes. And that's if a whole other issue. If you bring on, if you have a sour program right. and you have 30 different sours out of your 300 something tabs. I like a good sour. Yeah, me too. I fucking, I can't. I'm grown up from that. I'm a porter guy now. Stout, something like creamy, porter. something smooth, not too carbonated, won't drink IPAs anymore. But. Uh, you gotta make sure you you know don't drink too much of it. You want you know <laughs> moderation. Not only my mouth getting dried out or all tingly, but if you have too many of the same style of beer and there's only X amount of styles of beer, a, a master cicerone will tell you there's thousands of different styles of beer, but there's only X amount of styles of beer. If you have that many drafts, that many different kinds of the same style, people aren't going to order enough of them for them to come off rotation. And a business owner who's looking at the cost of goods sold on their draft beer, their alcohol program, because I've done it a million times, is not just going to pull a keg because it's not selling to replace it with a new one. That's wasted inventory. That's product. The average half barrel costs anywhere between $168 and $500, top of the line, bottom of the line. Even a six barrel, uh, which is more expensive per ounce because you're buying it smaller, you're not buying it in bulk, costs an average of $99, tops out at 400 depending on the kind of beer. You're not just going to waste that. And it just seems, it's so stupid. I always it's, thought Raleigh Beer Garden was a stupid concept. And well, I now just it can hate be stupid and right near you. Charlotte, Charlotte will never let uh, Raleigh outdo them. Yeah. We well, got enough stupid shit in the South End. Why not add one more? Well, let's talk about some good shit to wrap up. We always like to wrap up, wrap up with a nice little lighthearted good oh. news. And this, oh, is, yeah. this is great news. And this is talk something about just... Talk uh, about economic mobility. No, this is even Wait. better. No, I'm just kidding. Uh. <laughs> this is something close to me and Ju- Justin and I's heart because... Me and Justin's heart. Justin and Justin. I? Me and in Justin. In the middle of the sentence. Because it's... Never mind. I'll explain. I'll Justin and my. Justin and my heart. Because... We were we ate one of these before it even really went viral. Yeah, before the post was made. Yes, before the post was made, but the Popeye's chicken sandwich is coming back. Oh. It is official. <laughs> Roy's already rolling his eyes, so that answers that it's question. It's so good. I haven't it's had so it. Good. So oh, both, it's so he good. He hasn't even had it. So both of y'all had it? Oh, yeah. We, we had ate it, it before we, it went viral, and we were just, we were both absolutely, it lived up to the hype that came later. We left a panel discussion of Moms of Man Action, Gary McFadden and all them talking about gun violence and yada, yada, 
yada yada. And now, don't get me wrong. It's, it's important. We've talked about it. But we've already talked about it. Yeah. So then we went to Popeye's, and I had lost a contact during the panel, so I was very uncomfortable. And uh, we get to Popeye's, and we go inside, and we sat down and ate that chicken, and I didn't even care that I didn't have a contact It was anymore. pretty great. Um, wow. They said they're going to hire thousands more employees nationwide to deal with the um, high demand. When is it coming demand. back? Before they Chris- have not given oh. a timeline yet. We'll I think I'll have one. Yeah, wow. definitely. I'm definitely curious about it. that just because. So I always thought they were just doing, and they probably still are. That it's a it's a media ploy or it's a marketing, marketing. ploy. Um, well, I think they ruined it by taking it away. Right, it's not going to come That's back with the same height. Yeah, it will. You think? I hope not. Yeah. So think like, I think I think everybody that had it is going to go back to get it. Which is a lot. I, yeah, I guess it's. A I lot. think it will because I'm gonna go get it. I'm gonna get I it. I think people like I've never had it. I'm like, all right, I, mean, I gotta go check it out. It's all the way down North Carolina nah, every nah, day. I have to I tell out. y'all a story. I'm not yeah. much of a mediator, but you know, I was curious, right? Mm-hmm. Pop out is from Louisiana, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm riding down Central one day, and I pulled into. I didn't see a lot of cars, so I pull. I said, well, you know, I don't see a lot of cars, so I'm going to check out this sandwich, right? <laughs> so I pull in, and there's a sign on the door. And a guy walked across, walking to the door, and he read the sign. <laughs> and, I, and I was curious what it was. And he right. came to my car, and I said, what the sign said? He said, they're out of chicken sandwich. <laughs> 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 I said, that's why the line was not <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Yeah. yeah but he, but he, he went inside to make oh. sure. That they were, <laughs> you didn't trust the sign, right? Right. <laughs> you didn't just leave that up after you restocked it, right? <laughs> Yeah, when Ryan, when me and when Ryan and I, when the yes. when the two of us went, uh, there was nobody there, uh, and it was great because nah, nobody knew yet. Nobody it was knew. like the next day when somebody next made a day, Twitter post. Bojangles, you should have bought about a hundred of them. <laughs> Bojangles started tweeting. I forget what they said. They said you okay to to Wendy's or something like that. Oh, oh, Chick fil A. Yeah. Chick fil A. No, Popeye oh, said right. Popeye said you okay to Chick fil A. Oh, that's right. Yeah, or something. But Chick Fil A, I've always thought that Chick Fil A sucks. Chick Fil A sandwiches suck, right. and they hate the gays. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't. I'm not a big fan either. My my family, Chick Fil A. I'm the I'm the the sole holdout. I don't do Chick Fil A. My kids, my you wife. No, I'm love not a big. Chick-fil-A. I'm not a big like boycotter. Um, because I think as long as you treat your workers right, like I understand that every CEO sure. CEO in this whole yeah. country is pretty much an asshole. Um, I'll I'll eat at Chick Fil A. I don't go there often because I don't know where one no. is. Not you, not Daryl. I mean, of a, a humongous corporation. I mean, technically, I could have been talking about Justin there. Yeah, uh, two hundred people, not twenty people. Right. <laughs> um, and like, I'll eat a Jimmy John's every once in a while. That guy sucks, but I won't like go to Walmart because they don't treat their workers right. That's they, sort of that's better, my yeah. thing. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I've heard they've done better. I go okay. to Wal- I I exclusively I Walmart. shop at Walmart. I got a T-shirt there the other day. I know you did. For more, but. I'm still your, boycotting the NFL. In your defense, okay. I boycott the NFL because the NFL football anyway. sucks. Um, sorry, I just hate it. I'm a baseball guy only. Um, and I apologize on your behalf because I'm, I'm the one that sent you to Walmart. Oh, yeah. Well, I went and I did it and we wore it on TV and it didn't it didn't catch on. It was on, a flop. So, yeah. Well, all my outfits are from Walmart. Well, the, what was not a flop, if you like transitions, was this podcast. This is a great discussion. And I really <laughs> appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, yeah, thank amazing you so discussion. much. discussion. I learned yeah. a lot, and, and I think we gave people a lot of insight if they haven't gone and voted yet. It's Get out there and vote, man. Big vote with a low turnout. Yeah, your, vote. your vote's going to mean more because we are in a non-presidential year. There's not a whole lot of campaign races that are even close right now, competitive. But it you should pay attention to the school directly. board. You should pay attention school to board. what Gina Navarrete is doing. Uh, 
in District 6. Six, yeah. And, city Council um, City. City Council District 6. And obviously this arts tax is the one potential sales tax, proposed it's sales tax. the only one that doesn't divide the line right. party-wise. Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, we're out of here. We'll see you in two weeks. But uh, thanks for listening. Toodles, poodles. Toodles.